up to speed. Back in August, we began a series through the book of Acts, and we took a pause for uh, Advent for about four or five weeks there in December, but have come back around to Acts and are going to continue to work our way through this book of the Bible until the end of May, at which point, I'm not sure that I've said this to the church in this context, but just to give you a trajectory for where we're going in 2019, when we get to the summer, we're going to dive into the book of Ecclesiastes together which is a fascinating book of the Bible. Some of you are like, hold up, isn't that just a book filled with depression and should I be excited about summer 2019? It's one of the most honest books of the Bible. It has the lowest of lows associated with it. Yes, that is true. But it also shows us what, what the reality of the Christian life actually is, what it means to live a Christian life that's not hid behind a veneer of religiosity, that's not just placating God and, and living with this surface level understanding of who he is and what the world that we live in is like. And so I think you'll be really challenged and encouraged by that series if you stick around for that. And then when we get to the fall, we're gonna dive into the Sermon on the Mount, leading us all the way up to Christmas. So really exciting stuff to come. But this morning, we continue through the book of Acts a book that I've said from the very beginning is essentially the wild and crazy story of a bunch of ordinary people, just like you and me, empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God, turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the very promise of Jesus himself. He said he would do it to build his church with the gates of hell powerless to stop it. In the advancement of the gospel from Jerusalem, as we saw in the very beginning of the book of Acts, to the farthest reaches of the known world, which is where we find ourselves this morning. And so today, we're gonna to close the books on the second of the Apostle Paul's famous missionary journeys. We'll get to three of them by the time all said and done. This second journey, just like the first one, is one filled with all kinds of crazy ups and downs. We've seen Timothy added to Paul's missionary team, the one and same Timothy will, that will eventually pastor the church in Ephesus. We've seen the core group gathering of a new church plant in the city of Philippi, the very first church on European soil under the banner of Christianity, a rich lady and her friends, a recently demon-possessed slave girl and a blue-collar jailer forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ becoming the core group of a church. We've seen Paul preach in the synagogues of Thessalonica and Berea, one crowd responding to the gospel with great hostility and jealousy, the other responding with eagerness and belief. And then going back to last week, if you were around last week, we saw Paul proclaiming the gospel in the marketplace of Athens, a crowd filled with philosophers, his heart filled with both righteous indignation and brokenhearted compassion as he looked out on a city filled with idols. I was thinking about this this week. The second missionary journey of, of the apostle Paul and his friends is, is really quite incredible. Think about this. If you go back and you look at the various cities that Paul visits on this journey, Without Paul's second missionary journey, none of our Bibles would include 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. None of our Bibles would include the book of Philippians. And none of our Bibles would include 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, I don't know if that means a whole lot to you, but to me, when, when I go back and look at my life, one of my favorite passages of scripture, instrumental in my own conversion story, is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Many of you have heard this before. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness in creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When I sat under the preaching of that very verse of scripture, it radically reoriented my thinking and changed my life forever. I, I can't imagine where my life would be without 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which makes me all the more grateful for the laboring of the Apostle Paul on this second missionary journey. And maybe you would agree in the sense of going, yeah, think about verses or passages in the book of Philippians or 1 Thessalonians that have impacted my life along the way. And kind of crazy to think that, that those verses, those passages would not be there were it not for the planting of these churches that Paul would later go on to write to, which make up those books of the Bible. No doubt a, a labor that puts some serious mileage on the Apostle Paul, some serious mileage, which we've already seen and will continue to see this morning, but, but one in which God's kindness is evident as are his power and grace. We'll see that this morning. If you come in this morning experiencing maybe what, what you might call a little bit of PTSD, 
maybe struggling to bounce back from the pummeling waves of life, or, or if you know someone that that's true of, that, that God might be leading you to minister to, God offers some incredibly encouraging words to us, us this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 18. We'll be in the first 22 verses of that chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Acts is just past the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, if you don't own a Bible or the translation you come in with is difficult to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in because we've got a little bit of ground to cover. God, I never thought I would say it as I looked out into the future and thought of our church walking through the book of Acts that Acts chapter 18 might be my favorite chapter of this book of the Bible. With, with all the crazy episodes surrounding it, from the, the shaking of prison cells and the opening of, of those cells by your miraculous power and the conversion of demon-possessed slave girls and Ethiopian eunuchs traveling on desolate dirt roads, the manifestation of your Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Paul in his crazy shipwreck story that we'll get to soon enough, the, the burning of magic arts books in chapter 19. There's, there's so much to grab hold of that we could say, how amazing is this story and this episode and, and that one? There's so many good ones, so many fascinating things within this book of the Bible, and yet I'm drawn to chapter 18 because in it we get an honest, very raw moment between God and his missionary, God and his son. And I think there's something in that for us this morning. And so I pray that for any who do come in feeling like they've been pummeled by the waves of life, feeling like even small encouraging things aren't encouraging enough to bounce back. God, that you would meet them just like you do the Apostle Paul here in Acts 18. God, I pray that those of us who come in and we maybe feel to use that ocean imagery a little more buoyant, able to bounce around and play around in the waves because we don't feel like we're getting pounded by them, that, that we would not shut down for the next little bit that we have together, but would listen in, understanding that there's a ministry that you've given us in those places where we, we do find ourselves a little less pummeled, I might say, to enter into the lives of others who are hanging on by a thread and to point them to you, Jesus. You have something in this passage for all of us. I pray that you would Open our ears to, to hear and our hearts to receive that which, that which you've given us in Scripture by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you to move in these moments as we open your word together. Spirit of God, move in power in this time to come. Same Spirit who was alive and well 2,000 years ago in the book of Acts and is with us today, present. We anticipate and we expect you to move. So in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. You ever have those moments where the timeliness or the providence of God just astounds you? You didn't really even expect God to do something that he then did? Well, I wanna, I wanna begin this morning by reading something to you. And it's something that I read a week ago to those who participated in our foundations course and I was forward thinking to Acts 18, but I didn't anticipate that God would bring this collision of these, these two different environments that, that represent our church together in this kind of way. For those of you who, who haven't yet taken the foundations course, the final class is basically all about case studies. The hope being to create more gospel fluency as a church, more gospel centrality, the gospel at the center of our thinking, the gospel at the center of the way we engage in dialogue with each other and with those out on the mission field. And the goal 
of that last class is to try to get after that by considering various situations and struggles through the lens of the gospel. And so this past Sunday, I basically did the same thing that I did with the fall version of the class, for those of you who took it back in the fall, which was to present a a personal situation of my own to the class, something that I'm facing in the present tense, and then inviting those in the class to, to ask as many questions as they wanted so that they might be all the more informed in speaking the good news of Jesus into that situation that I'm dealing with. Rather than just saying, John Doe's going through, and then we can't ask John Doe questions, right? And so great opportunity for Pastor Jamie to be a little vulnerable and invite people to dive in. And so here's the situation that I shared with the class this past Sunday, verbatim, I said this, I recently spent the better part of a year struggling through a season of disheartenment, feeling as though I was getting pummeled by wave after wave, sea billows rolling over me. Coming out of that season, I now find myself struggling not to brace for the next wave, tense rather than buoyant. I want to enjoy the goodness and grace of God in both big and small ways, but but I find that the year-long experience of being pummeled by the waves has made it difficult to do so. That's what I shared a week ago in that class. And my sharing of that present tense struggle was followed by uh, one of the most encouraging conversations I've ever had. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version of that conversation at the end of the sermon. But you might ask the question, why, why even bring that up? I mean, why share a case study from a class that took place a week ago having to do with gospel fluency? And the reason is this. What I shared in that class a week ago is eerily similar to what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 18. The the Apostle Paul of Acts 18 is an incredibly relatable Apostle Paul. If you've ever thought to yourself, I don't know, like Paul might be able to, to, to accomplish some of these things that we see in scripture, but I don't know that God would ever call me to this, that, or the other, or could ever use me in this kind of way you get a very relatable Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, a man having been pummeled by the waves of circumstance, struggling to bounce back, disheartened and even fearful. Look at verse one. It says, after this, after the episode with the Areopagus in chapter 17, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Okay, picking up where we left off last week, Paul has just delivered his famous speech in Athens to a crowd of philosophers at the Areopagus, the hill of Ares, the Greek god of war, which is no subtle detail. I mentioned this last week. A war for souls has just taken place in Acts chapter 17. The effects of which Paul carries with him to the next stop on the journey, the city of Corinth. Final major focal point on Paul's second missionary journey. If, if Athens was the, the intellectual and cultural capital of the world at the time, Corinth, you could say, was the political, commercial, and social capital of the world. You had land access to central Greece on the one side. You had water access to the Mediterranean and all of its various trade routes on the other side. It's a very strategic move on the part of God to plant a church here. Home of the the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and and with that, a culture of cultic temple prostitution. This was a, a very corrupt cosmopolitan city, the city of Corinth. Some liken Paul's journey from Athens to Corinth to leaving Boston for New York City. Others would go further and say like leaving Cambridge for Vegas. And we're told in verse two that upon arrival, he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. According to historical records, the the gospel made its way to the city of Rome long before the apostle Paul ever did. And it created such an uproar among the Jewish community there that the emperor kicked them all out of the city, an entire demographic of people displaced from their home, which is why we're told that Priscilla and Aquila are living in the city of Corinth as the apostle Paul shows up on the scene, which is incredibly providential as they're able to provide Paul not only with a means of income, but a roof over his head. And so Paul would essentially make tents during the week and he would reason in the synagogue on the Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of the scriptures of the Old Testament. And verse five tells us that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was accompanied 
are occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. A couple of um, encouraging things that we know to be true of Silas and Timothy's arrival. And this is one of the beauties of the book of Acts. We, we talked about this uh, at the beginning of our relaunch into this book of the Bible a couple of months ago, the, the fact that in the book of Acts, you get to jump over to other books of the New Testament and kind of see how all the pieces come together. You get to go to 1 Corinthians and see the disposition of Paul as he arrived on the scene. You get to see some of the connectors to the city of Philippi, which he had just left as he made his way through Thessalonica and Berea and on into Athens and now to Corinth. And so we know that there are a couple of encouraging things that are true of Silas's and Timothy's arrival. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven nine 9, that the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Scholars very unified in believing the brothers to mean Silas and Timothy, bringing with them a love offering from the city of Philippi, from the church there. And so Paul gets a little financial support, which frees him up to do a little less tent making and a little more ministry of the word. And not only... Are we told that Silas and Timothy bring funding with them, but they also bring a good report regarding the church of Thessalonica, which is the very city, if you recall from chapter 17, that formed a mob against Paul and chased him all the way to the next city of Berea. If you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, this is what Paul says as he writes to that church based on the report of Timothy and Silas. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us here in Corinth from you, he has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Silas and Timothy show up on the scene in the city of Corinth and immediately the Apostle Paul has financial support and an encouraging update on the state of a church in a very hostile city to the gospel. And we're told that it brings him some level of comfort in the midst of distress and affliction. However, not all is right in the world. Coming back to Acts 18, look at verse six. We're told that the response of the Corinthian Jews to Paul's preaching is not at all favorable, right? That they oppose and revile Paul. And that he, he ends up shaking the dust from his garments, a symbolic gesture declaring God's judgment on the hostile Jewish crowd and disdaining the gospel. Paul basically says, I'm innocent of your blood. Your hostility toward the gospel is not on me. I'm directing my attention now to the Gentiles in this city. So that we're told, one of the most bizarre episodes in the book of Acts and a little humorous, look at verse seven. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Hey, Paul, Paul sets up shop right next door to the synagogue. That's bold, right? Planting the Corinthian church right there on the premises. How hilarious is that? Hey, you can just hear, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> no, nah, we don't wanna be your neighbor, Paul. Well, we're gonna be neighbors. Not only does Paul set up shop right next door to the synagogue, but the head rabbi ends up becoming a Christian along with his entire family, because that's what God does. And many others also become Christians in the city, we're told. Now, if you didn't read ahead and you didn't know what verse nine was gonna say, what would you expect it to say? Ministry's booming, the baptismal waters are moving, the fearless Paul is back in the saddle, right? Not quite. Look at verse nine. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Not only is this an incredibly fascinating moment in the book of Acts, but it's an incredibly personal, intimate moment. Right? As Paul arrives in Corinth, we, we do know something of his disposition. He would later go on to write to the church in Corinth that he came to them in weakness and fear and much trembling, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. Right? We, get, we have to remember 
And this is why context is so important. We have to remember that Paul had just been beaten with rods in the city of Philippi. That he had been rejected and mobbed by the Thessalonian Jews. That he had just recently experienced a public mocking in the city square of Athens. Paul's been pummeled by the waves of circumstance. And here's how we know that it had significant impact on him. Going back to some of the things we've already discussed this morning, Paul had begun to see some good things happen in Corinth, right? He'd seen the encouragement and support of Priscilla and Aquila, a roof over his head, food on the table. He had received the encouraging report about the church in Thessalonica, a church that I'm sure he he was wrecked in his mind at the thought of how things might be going in that city hostile to the gospel. He had received a love offering from the church in Philippi that he would go on to write to them about how encouraging it was to him. And he had begun to see many people, including the head rabbi of the next door synagogue coming to Christ in the city of Corinth itself. And yet, verse nine, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. What that leads me to believe is that the apostle Paul was dealing with a little PTSD, that he was struggling to bounce back having been pummeled by wave after wave. Like Elijah, after his episode with the priests of Baal and the threats of Jezebel. Kent Hughes is is really helpful here in his commentary as he makes sense of what the Apostle Paul was up against. This is what he says. He says, for 500 years, the the verb, let me try to get this right, the verb Corinthiozestai, to Corinthianize is what that means, meant to be sexually immoral. Okay, let me just stop there on the quote. Basically, when you showed up to the city of Corinth on the welcome sign, it said the equivalent to welcome to sexually immoral town. That's where Paul shows up here in Acts chapter 18. Hughes goes on to say, Corinth was the vanity fair of the ancient world. Every night, a thousand prostitutes descended the Acre Corinth to ply their trade in worship of Aphrodite. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine every night a thousand prostitutes descending on the avenue? He goes on to say, there had been culture shock in Athens and now Paul experienced moral shock in Corinth. It's sweat and perfume and grit smothered Paul's righteous soul and he became depressed. Remembering his past experiences, he knew what could happen to him in Corinth and the apostle, as great a servant of Christ as he was, became discouraged, fearful, insecure. Even though there were some spiritual bright spots in Corinth, he needed a lift. You ever been there? Some of you come in this morning and go, yes, yes and amen, right now, this very day. I don't even know how I got into this space, if I'm honest with you. I find the Apostle Paul to be incredibly relatable here, pounded by the waves of circumstance, the encouraging things of of life not quite encouraging enough to fully bounce back. It's very possible that Paul might have even been lying in his bed, curled up in the fetal position when the Lord spoke to him. I just just picture the most desperate cries of David in the Psalms, the, the ones that the church oftentimes sweeps under the rug and says, you can't feel those things as a Christian. Paul's in a moment of real crisis and we're told that God meets him there because that's what God does too right in the midst of his discouragement and fear. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Okay, let me stop here for a second and say, there's a twofold thing that God does here in Acts 18 as he meets with Paul. There's both an an exhortation, maybe even a rebuke that involves commands. Paul, this is what you're called to, but it's coupled with these sweet promises that undergird those commands that God offers the apostle Paul. Notice the commands first. Do not be afraid. That that command is written all over the pages of scripture, right? The most well-known examples for most of us being the angel of the Lord telling Mary that she would bring Jesus in the world. Fear not, for I come to you with good news. Or Jesus with the disciples in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Or how about the women having run to Jesus's tomb on the third day? God says to the apostle Paul, don't be afraid and also Don't allow the pummeling waves of circumstance to keep you from pointing people to Jesus. But again, that's not all the Lord says. He gets underneath those commands with some incredible promises, right? Meant to encourage Paul toward obedience. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for, it's a critical word here in chapter 18, for 
I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. God makes Paul three promises. Number one, I'm with you. You're not alone. Secondly, I'm surrounding you with a hedge of protection here in Corinth. And thirdly, many will come to Christ in this city. Wouldn't we all like to hear the fullness of those words? No harm will come to you in your life. Circumstances will go well for you. I've created a hedge of protection for you that will never go away. And secondly, your ministry will produce a harvest. It's not just about faithfulness, but your faithfulness will be equated exactly with fruitfulness everywhere you go. Wouldn't we all love to hear that? I know I would. Apparently, this is so beneficial to the Apostle Paul. It impacts him in such a significant way that he decides to do what's not typical of the Apostle Paul, which is to stick around in the midst of the hostility rather than moving on to the next city and doing so for a much lengthier amount of time than he's been accustomed to doing. Look at verse 11. It says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God meets Paul in the midst of the pummeling waves and that encounter with God causes Paul to stick around for the better part of a year and a half, closer to two years if you count the quote unquote many days longer of verse 18. Two years evangelizing unbelievers. Can you imagine how many people came to Jesus? Two years discipling those within this newly established core group. Can you imagine how much growth in the gospel happened in that city? Luke wastes no time in showing us that God makes good on his promise, not just through the implicit reality of the ministry that would have taken place with the Apostle Paul on the ground in the city of Corinth for the better part of two years, but also in showing us immediately God's hedge of protection over the Apostle Paul, keeping him from harm. Look at verse 12. We're told as the story continues to unfold, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Uh-oh, that sounds like a problem based on God's promises. And they were saying, verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. In the city of Corinth, Judaism was considered to be an authorized religion. And so the Jews here are basically accusing Paul of bringing an unauthorized religion into their assembly. And we're told that before Paul is even able to open his mouth to defend himself, the problem is no longer a problem. Gallio looks in, he concludes that Paul, a Jew, is simply proclaiming a different variety of Judaism, one that conflicts with the Corinthian interpretation it's, it's this very matter-of-fact articulation on Luke's part of what was really a dangerous moment, right? Not only for Paul, but the further expansion of the gospel. Think about this. The verdict here could set a precedent for what Christians could say and do versus what they couldn't say and do in various uh, places of Roman influence, diminishing the opportunity to evangelize in certain places. Luke, in a very matter-of-fact way, is out to make clear that God made a promise to Paul and God always keeps his promises. So that we're told as this second missionary journey comes to a close, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, meaning that he wasn't harmed, meaning that he continued to point more people to Jesus and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Sentry, he, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow so Paul heads with his newfound friends to his home base of Antioch, looking to bring the second missionary journey to a close. On his way, he cuts his hair as part of a, a Nazarite vow, most likely as an expression of gratitude for God's safekeeping. I was even reminded in, in a very simplistic way this week of how often I cry out to God for deliverance, but fail to remember to thank him for anything. My prayers heat up when it comes to petition and requests, which is such a heart of religion and not a heart of the gospel. The apostle Paul says, no, I gotta stop. I gotta stop in the city of Jerusalem. I gotta go to the temple and express gratitude for what the Lord has done in my life. And we're told 
In verse 19, they came to Ephesus and left them there, Priscilla and Aquila, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and they asked him to stay for a longer period, but he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem. And then he went down to Antioch. Paul ends the journey where it began, the city of Antioch, stopping in Ephesus in Jerusalem on the way. The stop in Ephesus, a foreshadowing of what's to come. That Paul's third and final missionary journey will involve a great deal of focus on the city of Ephesus. And so th- these verses are kind of like that thing that TV shows do, right? When they leave you wanting in the final episode of the season. Like this is the final episode of season two of the adventures of Paul, season three coming to an auditorium near you, you know? That, that's kind of what's taking place here at the end of chapter 18. But before we close the book on season two, I wanna come back around, and I've alluded to this already, to verses nine and 10 of this morning's passage, because I think it's worth asking the question, in a very personal, intimate moment like we see between God and the Apostle Paul, is there anything in those verses for us? Is there anything there for us? Particularly those of us who have been pummeled by the waves of circumstance and have struggled to bounce back. I mean, if the Apostle Paul needed encouragement from the Lord, to keep fighting, certainly we do too, right? And if we don't, then surely we will. Coming back to those verses, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. When we look at the commands, what can we say? Is there an exhortation for us, maybe even a rebuke? And I think the answer would be yes. Those commands are just as much for you and I as they, are, as they were for the Apostle Paul. God doesn't want us to live our lives debilitated by fear, crippled by, by anxiety, incapacitated by worry. Paul would go on to write about those very things in his letters to the churches Nor does God want us to to retreat from the calling that he has on our lives to point other people to Jesus. And for us, I would argue that there's a both and there. It's appointing one another to Jesus as the church and also pointing others to Jesus on the mission field that that surrounds us. That Christians need to be pointed to Jesus just as much as non-Christians. If you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you, you know the heart behind that. We need to be brought back around to the good news of Jesus over and over and over again. Such that I would say that one of the most devastating things that I I think happens in the life of the church is when people retreat when life gets hard. Whether it be a retreating from the church herself and the various opportunities to to live out this one-anothering, to minister to each other, or a retreating from the mission field. And, and I could go the angle of saying it's so devastating because of what's lost for us, the ones retreating, for the ways that we could be ministered to, for what God could do in our lives when we move toward others, toward what God has called us to, rather than away into isolated corners of darkness. I could talk about that, but I actually think there's something more devastating, which is that the glory of God is at stake, And every time we retreat, we diminish or eliminate an opportunity for God's power to be put on display through human weakness. Coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter two, I mentioned that Paul came to the church in Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. The very next words the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians In weakness and fear and much trembling I came, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, in the wisdom of Paul, in the strength and put togetherness of Paul, but in the power of God. You see that? Paul would go on to say elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're a bunch of broken, fragile clay pots who carry the good news of Jesus Christ within us. We're not put together. 
When, when we retreat from the ministry God's given us both in the church and in the community, when things get hard, when we do that thing, we rob God of a perfect opportunity to show his perfect power in and through our human weakness. I could say it like this. God loves to flex when we are at the end of ourselves, which means that we need to be most invested in the church and our mission field when we're most debilitated. It's so upside down from the way human beings think, is it not? When we're most discouraged, when we're most insecure, when we're most fearful. Do you not most wanna retreat when it's a Sunday morning or the day of your community group? Let's be honest. I do. I've been honest with my group to say to them at times, I was really hoping that enough of you would text and say we can't make it, that we could just call it off today. Because life was hard that day or that week. I'm convinced that it's a tactic of the devil of hell. I really am. To whisper in our ear, to pull away from others when things get hard because it's one less opportunity for God's power to be displayed in and through our human weakness. I'll give you an example personally for me. So I just shared with you, I put my cards on the table. 2018 was hard. And we could bat that around and you could go, well, it wasn't as hard as my 2018. And we can kind of compare, you know, apples to apples and apples to oranges and whatnot. But from my vantage point, it was hard. And, and what that means is that there were some Sundays when I sat on the other side of those double doors back by the coffee bar in the art space next door and pleaded with God to give me a feeling sense of the Holy Spirit because I wasn't sure I could preach that day. And it was such a desperation that I prayed for him. And maybe you've been here before. I prayed for him to give me that feeling where it feels like the hairs are standing up on your head because that seems like the spirit's actually present and, you know, in it's sort of a feeling, tangible way. And there were a couple times that, that happened. I was like, thank you for the tingling hairs, God. And I can preach now. <laughs> but if I can be brutally honest with you, there were a few times that that didn't happen. And my disposition as I walked along that wall and up onto this stage, I kid you not, was good luck, God. I hope you can do something with this. And then to get up and to preach a gospel that objectively is outside of me and to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the, the sufficiency and beauty of the word of God in this sort of out-of-body experience and to step off the stage and to feel just as weak as I did before I stepped onto it and to have people come up and go, I need to talk to you about this morning's sermon because it had significant impact on my life and me going numerous times in 2018, are you kidding me? Like, you've gotta be joking. And I could take that and I could say, you know, the thing that I don't get the luxury of doing is saying, I'm not gonna preach today. Cross Point Peachtree City is only gonna get 45 sermons this year. Sorry, just wasn't up for it. But there's so many instances where we can say no, right? We can say no to engaging in our community group this week or coming into this space on a Sunday morning or moving toward that cup of coffee that person wants to have with us or that we know we should be having with that person or the mission that God's given us in the workplace or our neighborhood or whatever it is. There's so many reasons to retreat. It is, it's easier. It really is. But God says, Acts chapter 18, pressing in is not only better, it's what I've called you to. I, I love the scene in, in the famous war between the Spartans and the Persians, you have the mighty Leonidas who has a six pack that I'll never have. And, and he's standing in great might as one of his men comes up to him and says, general, when the Persians shoot their arrows, there are so many of them that they darken the sky. And this is the response of Leonidas. Then we will fight in the shade. Like, we won't retreat. We won't run away from what God's called us to. We will fight under the darkened sky of hardship and suffering. That is the church, my friends. If we sit around waiting for the skies to become less dark, waiting for the number of arrows to lessen, then we will only ever stand at the margins of what God has called us to. You realize that, right? And I, and I know the argument that would come back in my direction because I've thought it myself. I thought it a lot in 2018. You don't know my pummeling waves. 
Who do you think you are to speak into my pummeling waves of circumstance? You're not facing the things that I'm facing, nor have you ever. And I could say the same thing to many of you about the pummeling waves in my life. Some of you have tasted them for yourself and I know who you are. But here, here's the beauty of Acts chapter 18. There is one who does know greater pummeling waves than you ever have experienced or ever will experience and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus sat under the darkened sky of Jerusalem as God poured out the fullness of the fury of his wrath upon the sun. You will never know a pummeling wave as great as that in your life. And that's what makes the red letters of Acts 18 so significant. They're the first red letters we see in eight chapters and they're glorious because Jesus doesn't let us off the hook when he calls us to something better He says, I'm the one who's been pummeled by the greatest waves and yet I'm still calling you to move toward, to not allow fear to debilitate you, to embrace the calling that I've given you. So how do we do it? See, that's the exhortation. You go, man, that last 10 minutes of this sermon, they were strong, (laughs) brother. That's the exhortation, maybe even the rebuke. But here's the beauty. We, we do have a promise that undergirds the call, the command. Again, coming back to verses nine and 10, God gets underneath those commands. And, and I, I, wanna, I wanna emphasize something here. All of these promises are not for us. I think we could easily look at this and go, okay, God's with me, check. I'll never be harmed in this life, check. My ministry, faithfulness, and the harvest of fruitfulness to match it will always be a one-for-one check. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Right? There, there are a couple of things that God promises Paul that are very specific to Paul's situation. Things that are not promised to any of us in this room. Namely, the protection of harm and a fruitful ministry. Hebrews chapter 11, if you were around for that series, crystal clear that faith is not rewarded the same way in this life. That some of us will love Jesus and live a, a pretty comfortable life free from harm. Others of us will love Jesus and suffer a great deal for it. The author of Hebrews says, some stop the mouths of lions. Some receive their dead back by resurrection. I want that for my life. I wanna be a part of that list, right? But then without even so much as a pause, the list goes on. Some, some were sawn in two. Some walked around destitute in the skins of animals as martyrs. Some of us will live a pretty comfortable life In light of our faith in Christ, others of us will suffer a great deal. And most of us will ebb and flow between seasons of comfort and affliction, seasons of triumph and and tragedy. I mean, think about this. Even the apostle Paul himself, to whom this promise is given in Acts chapter 18, what ends up happening? He ultimately dies a martyr's death, right? Paul's hedge of protection here in Acts 18 is so that God might accomplish his work in Corinth through Paul. We're not promised protection from harm in this life, nor are we promised a fruitful ministry, but rather we are called to faithfulness. Look no further than the prophet Isaiah who was called to preach for years to a people who would reject his message. With dull hearts, heavy ears, and blind eyes. If you've ever seen on a coffee cup, here am I, Lord, send me. You need to keep reading because the ministry's miserable that he's called to. How long, God, must I keep ministering to these people until the entire forest is felled and there's a stump of a remnant of my people left? Or how about the prophet Jeremiah, who apparently only had two converts that we can, that we can pinpoint during his entire ministry? Like, who's signing up for that one? Two converts over the course of your entire life? We have no certain promise that harm will not come to us, nor do we have certain promise of a visible harvest from the fruit of our ministerial labors. However, there is a promise in Acts 18 that we do have, and it's simple. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you picture the one declaring those words of promise, what what image comes to your mind? Particularly for those of us in this room having felt pummeled by the waves. Coming back to 
the situation that I shared with the class taking the foundations course this past Sunday. I'll read that again. I mentioned to them, I recently spent the better part of a year struggling through a season of disheartenment, feeling as though I was getting pummeled by wave after wave, sea billows rolling over me. Coming out of that season, I now find myself struggling not to brace for the next wave, tense rather than buoyant. I wanna enjoy the goodness and grace of God in both big and small ways, but I find that the year-long experience of being pummeled by the waves has made it difficult to do so. In other words, I know that I've been given a job and a home like Paul received from Priscilla and Aquila. I know that God is providing to meet my needs like he did through the love offering of the church in Philippi. I've received word of encouraging things that God is doing in this church, just like Paul received from Thessalonica. But I'm struggling, struggling to bounce back. Like Paul, I'm feeling discouraged, insecure, maybe even fearful. Where's the encouragement for those of us who know what it is to be knocked down, bracing for the next pummeling wave? I'll close this morning with the Cliff's Notes version of the response that came from the class this past Sunday. Three gospel truths that bring great comfort to my soul. And I pray that they encourage you to fear not and fight on. Number one, Jesus surely knows what it's like to brace for something awful as he awaited each and every one of the lashings that he received prior to his crucifixion. You just picture Jesus, 39 lashes. What must it have been like between number 21 and 22? To have tasted of it 21 times in a row and to know that there was another one coming. Jesus knows what it's like to brace for the worst, yet without sin. And in that regard, what that means is that not only is it possible for you and I to brace for the troubles to come in a way that we shouldn't be shamed for, in a way that's honest and honorable to the Lord, but we also have Christ's empathy in a very unique and beautiful way. We have a high priest, Hebrews chapter four, who knows what it's like to be pummeled by the waves and is willing and able to dispense perfect mercy and grace for help in our time of need just like he did with the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. I think I've said this in recent history. When you picture the high priest of Hebrews 4 dispensing mercy and grace, that's not just some generic pixie dust. He's looking at you through the lens of what it is to be the man of sorrows, what it was like to sit between those lashings in the midst of your pummeling circumstances, and he enters into that based on his own experience. That's the kind of mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Secondly, and this is so critical, Jesus's flogging and crucifixion were his bearing sin's curse. In our, we sing this all the time. In our place condemned, he stood. And what that means is not one of the pummeling waves in your life or my life are waves of condemnation. Romans 8.1, they, they can only be waves of purification. They're a father's purposing in the life of a beloved son or daughter. That for those who love God, many of you know this verse, Romans 8, uh, 28, all things work together for good. And can I say this morning that all things includes pummeling waves. Even those God works for good in the life of his beloved son or daughter. And then thirdly, and this is a sweet one, there's coming a day to use that ocean imagery in which the sea shall be no more, Revelation 21, 1. Not meaning that God will do away with the ocean, which he pronounced good in the creation story, rather meaning that the chaos symbolized by the sea in scripture will be done away with forever. That there will be no pummeling waves of circumstance in the new heaven and earth, only unending joy in the presence of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. Think about this. Your God is very unique, Christian. We worship a God who, in the fullness of his humanity, can empathize with us in our lowest lows and say, I am with you. And who, in the fullness of his divinity, is mighty to carry us through our lowest lows to the other side. That's your God. Charles Spurgeon once said, he whose omnipotence is test of testified by the revolving planets and systems of enormous galaxies can well sustain you. Is his arm too short that he cannot save? Or is he weary that he cannot hold you tightly? 
Your troubles are nothing to God, Spurgeon says, for the very clouds are the dust of his feet. It's that God who declares, I am with you. You're not alone. You're blood-bought. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's the God we're gonna worship in a couple of moments. If you don't know him, I pray that you do. Pray that you come to know him. I'd love to tell you more about him because without him, my life would be done for, devastated, hopeless. And I'm not just talking about eternity and the state of my eternity. I'm talking about when I wake up tomorrow. The God of Christianity matters every day and we see it here in the life of the Apostle Paul. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this God in a variety of ways as we do in this place every Sunday through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Man, what a sweet opportunity we have this morning to just pause and acknowledge the beautiful facets of the person and work of Jesus Christ as we prepare to come to the table. We have a God of empathy who stepped into our world and was pounded by the waves of circumstance, just like the Apostle Paul, just like many of us in this room. And he knows the worst of it and he can empathize with us. We have a God who who came under the darkened sky of condemnation so that we might not be condemned, but adopted in as sons and daughters of the living God. We have a God who didn't stay dead, but who rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Almighty where he does dispense mercy and grace in perfection in our greatest times of need, just like he did with the Apostle Paul. Spend some time thinking and soaking in these things and then come and receive the bread and the, and the cup with great gratitude. There will also be people in the back of the room to pray for and with you if you'd like prayer. And particularly if you, maybe this morning you go, I can't even hold my own arms up. I'm so tired. I, I'm in a proverbial fetal position even right now as we speak. And I'm not even sure I can talk to God if I'm honest with you. Come to someone else and let them approach the throne on your behalf. Let that be God's grace to you. And then let's sing to this God. Let's sing honestly to this God. Like David in the Psalms, we have an opportunity to slow down for a moment and to acknowledge that Christianity is, is not the pasted smile and veneer of religiosity that it's been made to be in our context. It's just not. God invites us to put the fig leaves down and to come to him in our worst and to receive his grace.